Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, it's fair to say Washington State Governor Jay Inslee has been in some scrapes in his political career. He started out in our State House of Representatives, then moved up to the United States House. But he lost that seat after two years and a run for governor in 1996 when he came in fifth. Bouncing back, in 1998, Inslee was elected as a U.S. representative again, a position he held until he won the governorship in 2012 and re-election in 2016. In the newly minted era of President Donald Trump, our governor seems to be raring for a fight. He took a barrage of questions on a recent visit to Seattle University and seemed to relish the moment. In the face of Trump administration actual and potential assaults on immigration policy, sanctuary city status, marijuana legislation, climate policy, basic agreement as to facts, and more, Inslee is not backing down. Held to account on issues facing Washingtonians more directly, he also stands his ground. Governor Jay Inslee spoke at Seattle University's Pigott Auditorium on April 12th at an event titled public service, and ethical leadership in the era of Trump. He was interviewed by journalist Joni Balter and Seattle University Institute of Public Service Director Larry Hubble. Sonia Harris recorded the discussion. Here, Seattle University President Father Stephen Sundborg introduces the event. Uh, thank you very much, Larry, and welcome all of you to Seattle University's campus, both the campus community here and the Capitol Hill community or here. It's great to have you here for this conversation series that we're having this year and welcome uh, Governor Inslee. It's great to have you back here. Uh, this event is sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and by the Institute of Public Service of which Larry is the lead. Uh, we're very, very pleased that they're hosting this event and we're glad to have it here. We've had three conversations in the course of this year. The first one were the candidates for the seventh uh, United, United States House of uh, Congressional seat. The second were the mayors of San Francisco and Seattle on homelessness. And tonight we thank the governor for being here to attend this event, which is part of our celebration of our 125th year. We're very modest about being at 125 years. We just kind of <laughs> subtly indicate to you that this is 125 years of Seattle U. At the last event on homelessness at the end, uh, Larry Hubble said, uh, by the way, the next event will be the, uh, Governor Inslee, and the subject will be public service and ethical leadership in the era of Trump. And there was this, <gasps> like this, and it was either this, wow, that's a daring subject, or people were gleeful about what is this evening going to be like. So, the Governor, thanks for being here, or thanks for your courage for being here on that subject. It's great to have you here. Uh, our state is very, very proud of you, Governor Inslee. We're proud of your leadership at this time and of your national reputation of what you're standing for. I think maybe the last time you were on this stage was in a debate on your re-election uh, in debate here, a governor's debate here at Seattle University in Pigott Auditorium of Seattle U. And I want to thank you in a very special way for the support of students across our state to make it possible for their college education. Uh, the governor has a, has a budget that he's put forward. He's now dealing with the budgets of the Senate and the House and where that goes. And he's been an advocate for students being able to access higher education in the state. Here at Seattle University, we have 450 students who receive what's known as the state, uh, the state need grant. And uh, those 450, they receive on the average about $7,200 a year, which makes their college education possible. Unfortunately, we have another 220 students who qualify for the, the need grant. 
uh, but they don't receive it because it's not appropriate enough. And Governor Inslee is trying to do everything he can in order to make it possible for those students to attend their colleges. So welcome to all of you. Welcome Governor Inslee, and let's have a great and interesting evening. I now invite to the stage uh, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, David Powers. Welcome David, please. Thank you, Father Stephen, and really a welcome to everyone. This is our third year of the conversation series that uh, Larry Hubble and Joni Balter have done here, and it's just been a great success. We're very happy to have you all here. Uh, I want to take a few moments now to introduce our, our guest uh, for this evening. Uh, Governor Jay Inslee is a fifth-generation Washingtonian. Went to high school here in Seattle. He served for four years in the Washington House of Representatives, and then almost 16 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. While he was there, the New York Times noted that he was one of Congress's, quote, most ardent advocates of strong action to combat global warming. He was elected governor in 2012 and won election to a second term in 2016. He's the vice chair of the Democratic Governors Association and will soon be the chair of that organization. Uh, recently, you may recall, uh, he joined with Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson. Uh, in a lawsuit that effectively blocked the Trump administration's attempt to bar entry. <laughs> blocked the, the attempt to bar entry into the United States by individuals from seven predominantly Muslim countries. Uh, we'll now be interviewed tonight, uh, as Father Steve said, by uh, Dr. Larry Hubble. Uh, who is the director of the Institute for Public Service, and Joni Balter, who is a professional residence in the Institute and is uh, a media, multimedia journalist who has worked for Bloomberg, the Seattle Times, and a variety of other media outlets. So welcome, Father Steve, welcome guests, and I will turn it over now to Larry and Joni. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, we're going to uh, have two segments in this uh, uh, conversation tonight. First, Joni and I will be asking questions of the governor, and then you'll have an opportunity to ask questions about the last half hour of this presentation, probably starting around 7.15 or 7.20. So please be thinking of some good questions you'd like to ask the governor. Thank Joni? you. So I'll start. Governor, thanks so much for, for participating uh, with us this evening. Um, you were quoted in the Washington Post recently as saying that governors and states are in a four-year battle to preserve the fundamental values of this country. And we can all sort of get a sense of, of what that is, but what exactly were you referring to? Uh, I'd like to answer that, but can I say hello first? Absolutely. Joni, if I can. Thank you for being here tonight. I don't think we can stop you. <laughs> oh, uh, thanks to, to Seattle U. Uh, I love being here, 125 years of a service-oriented group. Um, when I think of Seattle U, uh, this is the, there are two uh, great institutions named after Chief Seattle the other being South High School. My dad was a biology teacher and counselor at South High School, and I just like, I like the fact that we are continuing the tradition of, of Chief Seattle here tonight, who uh, was the son of a Duwamish and Suquamish parents, and I like the tradition of diversity and tolerance and working together uh, rather than inspiring division. So I would suggest the first way I would answer your question is, uh, I think the, the state and the nation will be uh, better off if we follow the lineage of Chief Seattle, which is you had uh, two people fell in love, a Suquamish and Duwamish, and gave us a leader that gave the namesake to the biggest city and the greatest state in the, in the United States. How's that? So that's a start. 
It's just a start of what we need to preserve, which is a sense of, of uh, tolerance and uh, an openness to each other uh, that is a, a fundamental value that is of the state of Washington and the travel ban in my position refugees was in, was essentially a, an element of that. So I would start there. Uh, then it is just such a long list. I have to tell you, it's a difficult question to answer because uh, uh, as I go through the things we're working on in the state of Washington, uh, an effort to defeat climate change, an effort to increase access to health care, uh, an effort to be open to uh, citizens who can come here and help build uh, our economy, an effort to improve access to early child education and college education, an effort to improve uh, mental health, an effort to bring greater justice to our criminal justice system so it's not, we don't have such disparate treatment of people with uh, disparity and racial uh, results. Every single one of those issues, he uh, presents a threat to every single one of those values. So it, it, you can't single out any one of those things. Um, it's going to be a day-by-day -day issue as to what you need to act on first and foremost. So um, it's all hands on deck. It's going to be um, a long few years. But I will tell you this, I, I, I took a little umbrage that the the title of this was uh, Democracy in the Era of Trump. I just want to say this. This is not the era of Trump. This is the era of America and the era of Washington. And we're going to get through this. This is a passing shadow. It's a passing shadow. And I would say that maybe one of our goals ought to be to make sure it is a temporary shadow, not a permanent uh, rendering of, of American values. I would say that's the best way I would categorize our effort. Governor, a lot of cities, including Seattle, have declared themselves to be sanctuary cities. And my question for you is, is Washington a sanctuary state? Well, because there's no definition of sanctuary city, either by philosophers or, or lawyers, it, you can't really say. And uh, that actually has been a little bit frustrating. Um, uh, I'll just talk about some of the issues that are important. Uh, I'll give you an example. In our state, uh, the president has taken it upon himself to one of his many violations of the Constitution has said that he believes he has the ability to force uh, local and state police departments to arrest people, to take into custody, put handcuffs on them, throw them in jail without uh, an arrest warrant at his order uh, based on immigration issues. He does not have that authority and we do not have that authority. P local police uh, officials do not have the authority to arrest people best based on what's called a detainer. That's a request by the immigration authorities to detain someone, to arrest them, to take them into custody. The courts have ruled on this, and local, dis local police officers simply do not have that constitutional authority. And as a consequence, the president clearly does not have authority to demand of local police agencies that they do that. Now, uh, he uh, uh, has decided he's going to try to punish cities and maybe states as a result of them standing up for the U.S. Constitution. And I can tell you this, he is going to fail. He is not going to be able to take away money from cities based on their standing up for the U.S. Constitution. I'm very confident of that. So I'm glad we're taking the position that we're going to stand not only for the U.S. Constitution, and this is very important, we're also standing for, for good law enforcement. Um, the sheriffs and police chiefs 
uh, issued, the Washington State Sheriffs and Police Chiefs issued a, a letter making it really clear that they did not agree that they would be forced into this unconstitutional act. But when you talk to law enforcement agencies, and our uh, chief law enforcement agent is uh, Chief John Batiste of the Washington State Patrol, what he makes very, very clear is we need our police officers who have very difficult jobs, when they walk up to a scene of a domestic violence or a car crash, they need people to be willing to come talk to them, to be witnesses, to, to help them solve the crime. They need victims of domestic violence not to be afraid to go to the police to say I've been victimized in domestic violence. We have to have victims be willing to access the criminal justice system. When you turn local law enforcement into many ICE agents for Donald Trump, people don't report crimes. They don't act as witnesses. So this is very important from our local law enforcement, our ability to protect people from crimes, and we are not gonna back up on this one at all. So that's the position we're gonna take. Now the sanctuary city issue, there are some other issues involving um, benefits or distribution of information. Those are cloudier and there's no black or white answer what he means, because you know what? He doesn't know what he means. He just doesn't. <laughs> And, uh, and so uh, we'll have to see what their position is, but uh, I think our position is right in Washington State. It's both constitutional and it's good to protect people from crime. So we don't have to remind everybody in the room, they already know it's been a long, cold, rainy winter. And because of all the storms here, uh, you have asked for a major disaster declaration from the Trump administration for 15 counties. Uh, do you expect that, you know, you have a position as pretty vocal anti-Trump. Do you expect that uh, request to be uh, treated fairly? And if so, why or why not? Uh, we do expect that to be treated fairly because uh, this is a president who is, uh, is supposed to serve both the law and the people of, of the state of Washington and 50 states. And we, yes, we darn well expect to be treated have fairly. Have you heard anything about your request have at not, all? Have not heard any specific request in that, in that regard. And... Uh, but yes, we should have that expectation. We should not allow punitive actions. I have to tell you that um, um, I, I know this is a concern of people, but we are not gonna brook any of that misbehavior by this president. We, you know, we will be loud and proud and uh, rebelling against it if we see any evidence of that. In what ways should we in Washington cooperate with the Trump administration? Uh, where it's appropriate and helpful. And there may be places where certainly that is the case. Um, uh, if the President of the United States, no matter what party they are, uh, if the President of the United States is wrong 999 times, but by accident gets it right on the thousandth time, we will, we will work with him or are her. Are you having too much fun with this topic? <laughs> I'm just wondering. <laughs> uh, we will work with him or her on these issues. Let me suggest where that could possibly happen. Obviously, you've heard discussion of uh, potential infrastructure uh, projects in the nation. Uh, we know we have needs for infrastructure that are profound. Thank goodness we have acted on this in the state of Washington. By the way, we didn't work, wait for the federal government. Last year, we passed the biggest infrastructure package in the history of the state and the greenest, the greenest, the most environmentally friendly uh, transportation package in the history of the state. We now have 70 billion dollars of infrastructure that we are doing on our own without working for waiting for Uncle Sam. But there is some possibility that the president uh, could help in designing a, a national infrastructure uh, project. Now that is a long, long ways from being accomplished because 
some of the ideas we've heard that he has suggested, uh, he has not suggested a way to finance them. We need to have a way to finance them. We, we, we just should not blow up the federal deficit to do this, just to declare victory. So we're gonna, he and everybody else is, is gonna need to be responsible about an infrastructure package, which is uh, not only make good investments, but have a way of financing it rather than blowing up the deficit, which has happened over the last several decades. Let's talk about pot here for a second. Uh, your name is on a letter for governors of states that have legalized recreational marijuana. I uh, have sent a letter to the name we keep saying, Donald Trump uh, and, and Jeff Sessions and asking them to kind of hands off of the great American pot experiment, which is what we're running in some of eight states now and the District of Columbia. But our law, as you know, was always predicated on the fact that uh, because marijuana is still illegal federally, it was predicated on the fact that the feds would look the other way. And the Obama administration did do that. <coughs> Said, go ahead, let the states have bigger fish to fry, was the exact quote. Uh, so how do you win that case? Um, Jeff Sessions, he's hinted, Sean Spicer, the spokesman for the president, they've all hinted and said they don't like legal recreational weed. Sometimes I wonder if Sean Spicer is actually experimenting when I listen <laughs> to Okay, that's your best line of the night. That's your best line so far. But <laughs> meaning what? These, what does are, that mean? these are softballs, Joni, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. That was a softball, but they're not all. <laughs> Serious issue. We actually uh, had today um, uh, the folks from five different states in my office today meeting with Rick Garza, who leads our Liquor and Cannabis Board. They were coming to see, uh, they were sharing ideas basically of how this is happening. I had a call uh, two days ago from another governor who basically is wondering how to treat this and he wondered what our experience had been. So and it's I a very- I understand people from 11 countries have been here as yes, well trying so, to study so, up. Well, it is interesting. This is the first time in world history that a, a, a country or state has actually fully legalized Cannabis, it's, it's kind of interesting how that's never happened before. So it is, quote, an experiment. Here's my view. I think that there is a good possibility, um, if not a probability, that the administration will not want to have open warfare with, with clearly with the way history in America is going on this. There's eight states, but there's about two dozen states that are in some stage of allowing at least medical marijuana. These are now becoming established industries with many people working in these industries. And this is where the history of the country is going. It's very clear on that. And frankly, the results have been quite positive. Uh, when I talk to other governors, I tell them, we have not had an increase in youthful use of cannabis. We have not had increased criminal behavior. It might be actually the opposite. We have had job creation associated with it. It has been a relatively smooth cultural transition. That actually has surprised me how much the culture has come to accept this. So there have not been really uh, untoward results that could, be, that could be objectively measured. So in any uh, kind of objective view, this, is, this quote experiment has been a relative success. So I, I think there is a good chance, again, if not a probability, that they will decide this is not a war of the many you know, domestic policy disputes uh, that we won't have this. Would it be fair to say, though, that some of the states, even though their revenues never really match some of the earliest predictions, there are pot revenues coming in, 272 million uh, projected. Uh, are the states getting 
shall we say, hooked on the revenues. The, the Republicans wanted to uh, fund education in part with pot money. Well, I think it's a legitimate concern. You don't want to do something that's going to hurt the health of your children in order to balance the books of the state government. You don't want to do that, right? I mean, just, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I would be violently opposed to this uh, current experiment if, in fact, it was showing that it was increasing, you know, dangerous drug usage uh, that, that you know, was a gateway to opioids. Uh, but, but the facts have just showed that that's not happening. So I don't think that phenomena is the case in our state. By the way, even though it is $270 million, you know, we've got a multi-billion dollar, billion dollar hole in our budget. I've so that, yeah. this is not going to solve, marijuana is not going to solve the financial problem. So I don't believe that is, uh, that's a major impediment. I would not argue against a state moving in this direction on that basis. You were recently quoted as saying, Democrats will go on the offense in 2018 with major opportunities to grow our ranks of Democratic governors. There are only 16 Democratic governors. How are you going to change the strategy? Uh, well, many like more governors. Many ways. Um, the most salient is that we are experiencing a, uh, a revulsion against uh, the, the current administration on so many different levels in so many different states, urban and rural, um, uh, upper and lower, tech, rural, ag, you name it, the administration has threatened uh, the basic values of this country so profoundly that, that I am seeing uh, uh, a, uh, a revolt, if you will, that is greater than anything I've ever seen. Now, I've been in public life for 25 years. I've gone through 1994, where the House Democrats lost 64 seats. Uh, I've gone through- You were one of those uh, seats, right? I was one of those seats. I voted for the assault weapon ban, and therefore the folks at Yakima you know, retired me for other duties. Um, <laughs> but I've never regretted that vote, by the way, just so you know. I thought that was the right vote then. I believe it's the right vote now. So uh, that was not a problem for me. But bottom line is what we are experiencing is something I have never seen before, which is a, a, a connection to the values of this country which people now recognize are threatened. And it has been very troublesome. The anxiety of people is profound. Uh, and I'm not talking about just people who think they might be deported. They are mothers worried about their kids education. They are people worrying about their health care. They're the, they're the 750,000 people who have health care that is now threatened by the president and the Republican proposal to eliminate uh, their coverage. You cannot overstate the energy that now exists. We saw this, I don't want to get too electoral on this, but we saw this in Kansas yesterday where, you know, it was a near thing in a place that Donald Trump won by 20 points. So even since the election, there is a recognition of the danger that this administration poses, and that's fundamentally what drives the underlying basis of these elections. If I can, I want to share you um, something in my book that is good that has come of this administration, if I can. And it's something I would not have anticipated. Um, if I had a nickel for every single person who came up to me on the sidewalk, and thanked me for standing up against the administration on this refugee and, and travel ban, I would be a rich man. I've never, I've never had an outpouring of sentiment and emotional compelling commitment to a position of anything I've ever seen in public life. 
Now that's troubling in the sense of how dangerous what he's doing is to the country. But that reaction that's going on across America shows that there is still a deep fiber of connection to the fundamental values of this country. And this has been inspiring to me. This is, is an old guy who's been in office for 25 years. The reaction of people who are willing to get out on the streets, who are willing to get on their Facebook, who are willing to protest, who are willing to speak out, means they care. So I gotta tell you, the one good, good thing about this administration, it shows that people care. And that's why in 2018, we are gonna win a lot of seats, and I'm gonna work like the Dickens to make sure that that happens. So speak, so <laughs> Speaking of 2018, you will then be the chairman of the Democratic Governors Association. Don't the Democrats who are trying to run and win some of these governorships need an economic message? Isn't that what was missing in 2016? Yeah, I, I think it's clear that uh, the Democratic Party as a, as a team uh, needs to be more effective in one way or another in, in connecting to the economic aspirations and more importantly, perhaps, the anxiety of many, many people in this country. There's no question about that. It is more profound in certain areas than others. Obviously, those that have not been able to avail themselves of the technological revolution that we have been able to avail ourselves in Washington those anxieties are more profound. So we clearly need to have a way uh, to connect in that regard. I think the team understands that. Now, there were kind of unique conditions, and I don't want to look in the rearview mirror that led to that inability for that to succeed. I don't think it was for a lack, actually, for trying. There were some other things that just kind of swamped the discussion, if you will. But I, I believe that a party that fundamentally understands a commitment to the education of our people. We are the party that are leading, for instance, career and technical education right now, so that we lead a position that says, hey, we shouldn't tell our children that you have to have a four-year college degree to be successful. You can be a success as a machinist or an electrician or a computer technician. And a message of the Democratic Party that we're gonna give all our kids a vision statement for their careers is a great economic message. And I believe we're gonna propound that in the next two years across the state of Washington, or across the United States. So I believe we will be there uh, uh, big time. Um, recently, the Seattle Times ran an editorial and they seemed somewhat annoyed by your uh, place in the national media spotlight and said you should focus more on state woes. What's your response to that? Oh, that's Seattle Times. You know, Joni, Joni knows about that. Um, you know, I think it's fair. I mean, that's it's it, it, you know, it's a fair comment. You don't want to obviously you don't want somebody to ignore your state when all these great things are going on. So it's fair to ask that question. I would say two things. Um, number one, I have been uh, very very active in all of the multiple things we're working on on a day to day basis. So every single day, I'm working on very local issues. The first of which is to satisfy the McCleary decision, to fulfill the paramount duty of the state. And every single day that goes by, every single day that goes by, I'm involved in some way and try to fashion and forge a, a consensus in that regard. So I don't feel disconnected from any of those issues at all. The other thing I would say is that, listen, if you are a governor and you are not involved at the barricades on national policies, you are not doing a job for your state because every single state in this country is threatened by these administration policies. Every single place that now has 
thousands of people who have health care because of health care reform. If you are not fighting this administration, you're AWOL. That's part of your job description. And if you're not fighting the travel ban that is now today, the, the president wanted to keep researchers from coming to universities to be able to do research. We had a guy here who was doing HIV research at the University of Washington. President Trump didn't want to let him come back to finish his research. If you're, not, if you're a governor and you're not protecting your research institutions, you're not doing your job. So uh, I feel very confident in what I'm doing, but I respect uh, the First Amendment rights of any newspaper to, to uh, gently criticize me. <laughs> okay. So can you update folks here on the travel ban? Because these things are going rather quickly. Uh, our state is party to two cases uh, involving both, both travel bans. What, what's going on with that right now? I guess the case is, is running on its merits, as I understand it. Yeah, that's true. And um, you've heard that uh, a Hawaii case, um, when the president came out with his uh, revised travel ban, which is really interesting, uh, one should not take perverse pleasure in the suffering of others, but... Um, While taking but pleasure. <laughs> the president, the president came out with, uh, with his revised travel ban in order to avoid the constitutional imperfections of his first one, and then spent enormous efforts by Mr. Spicer and others to say that the second one was just the first one in, in the same thing. He was kind of straddling a barbed wire fence there, and as a result, a Hawaii judge within about eight hours issued another injunction against the revised travel ban. That now is the law of the United States. He issued a, a nationwide injunction, uh, or TRO, against that travel ban. At some point, presumably, that will work up the chain to the Court of Appeals. Now, our travel ban litigation went to the district court. Then it went to the Court of Appeals. We won in both cases. Every single judge that has ruled on that has now ruled that he was wrong. 50% of those were judges appointed by a Republican president. 50% of those were appointed by a Democratic president. They had very strong opinions. They did not mince words about this. This was a very strong opinion. So basically what will happen is this will now go up to the Court of Appeals, probably through the Hawaii case first, because that's the one that's perhaps more active. And uh, we'll have to see. It could end up in the Supreme Court at some point. And uh, given the... Likely take months and years. Oh, yeah. Well, likely. I mean, y you don't know. The Supreme Court could act with, with alacrity, and they could, they could have an emergency hearing if they could. But, you know, under a normal case, these things would be years, you know, f for final decision. But because of the timeliness of it, it is possible that the courts will accelerate this all the way to the Supreme Court. That's possible. And by the way, our Attorney General, great job. Noah Purcell... Super job, Bob Ferguson, they did a great job for us, they really did. In that regard, we've seen a lot of public officials in the state, including yourself, uh, Bob Ferguson, uh, Ed Murray, businesses uh, leading the opposition to Trump. Why do you think that's occurring? Why is that occurring? Because we have a lot of smart people in our state, they get it. <laughs> and. Um, well, what happened, and maybe people already know this, but when, when uh, we filed our lawsuit, there were, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple dozen businesses that filed certificates or affidavits in support of our position. And basically what they said was is that the travel ban impeded 
their job creation opportunities, their businesses, and it impeded their ability to do business around the world, to send their salespeople, to sell their products, to bring customers in to look at their products, to have researchers collaborate. This research thing, too, is, is important to me because we're a research capital of the world right now, and, and when you impede travel, you impede incredible new developments. One of the guys that uh, the president tried to keep up was a very well researcher with the World Health Organization. He was on his way to the University of Washington to speak about, on a global health issue, Melinda Gates was instrumental in this confab, and they kept him out. Here's a guy trying to work on, on world health, you know, how criminal is that? So uh, the businesses were very helpful because, because they argued that there was an economic injury associated with the travel ban, our state was be able to show what's called standing, which means we, have, we are eligible to be able to be a plaintiff in the case. And uh, we do, we do have some progressive business community here. The uh, CEO or president of Expedia, I believe he's Iranian uh, by birth, he understands how important this is. Microsoft wants to sell their products every year, Amazon understands that. Uh, so we've got a great uh, visionary group here in our state. Now there was something else that showed up in the Seattle Times not too long ago. It was a front page story about you considering a run for the presidency. Are you considering a run? And where did that idea originate? It, uh, it was uh, a careful plot to uh, depress the circulation of the Seattle Times. People will, <laughs> people would no longer give the paper any credibility if they. <laughs> I am, I'm not thinking in those terms. Um, it's just a great state. This is a great job. I love this state. I get to get up every day and do amazing things with amazing people. So I like, I'm sticking where I am. So I might have this order wrong, um, but I thought it came from Susan Hutchinson, the chairwoman of the, no, seriously, because once the travel ban was announced and the judge ruled quickly, I saw uh, somewhere, and I don't remember which paper, um, quotes from her saying that the reason Bob Ferguson was so active on the travel ban was because he's running for governor 2020, and the reason that you were so interested in it was because it was clearly a presidential run. Just saying. Well, I would not hire as a political consultant. I, I will just say that much about it. I don't know how the story, you know, gets started. Obviously, this was a, you know, very high-profile issue for the nation. The nation was paying attention to what Washington was doing, and I was just part of the Washington effort at that point, so perhaps that's why it started. By the way, we've been, I've been teasing the Times here a little bit. I want to say something about some of the really great work they've been doing at the Seattle Times, and I'm going to segue into something you didn't ask me if that's okay, because I feel strongly about it. Can I just come it. up with a subject? So the Seattle Times has done a really good job in the last several months uh, setting the stage for the McCleary decision of really, in a really in-depth way, talking about what are opportunities and challenges in education. And they have done a superb job at talking about what works, what doesn't work, what other states have done that works, where we're weak, where we're strong, what the possibilities are about how to finance this investment. And it's really been great for a guy who is deep in the weeds on this. They have done a tremendous job talking about this. Now, here's why I mention this. Um, uh, people in public life frequently have kind of a strained relationship sometimes with newspapers whose job it is to criticize public officials. It just goes with the territory. But I got to tell you, I am so committed right now, any way we can possibly retain 
functioning newspapers that are dedicated to a professional approach to provide real news. Uh, this is so important in American democracy right now. We have to have a professional cadre that will try to challenge you know, uh, things that aren't true and question public officials and challenge ideas. And I'm very concerned about this right now because frankly our newspaper industry has some real challenges right now and Joni knows about that. And uh, we have to have some system of having a community-based distribution network of, of, of basic facts. And if we lose that, it's gonna make our public decision-making much, much more difficult. So I'm a staunch uh, advocate for all newspapers, no matter how critical they are of me right now, I'll tell you. Well, in that vein, then, alternate facts and fake, fake news and all of this, what does that do to faith in institutions like state government? Well, it, this is unparalleled. I'm 66, and um, it, it, I, it's hard to understand the universe we're living in sometimes that people don't feel that there needs to be any connection to reality. That, that's just something I never thought. I, I never... I never thought that America would have a president who has conspicuously displayed not only an aptitude, but a desire to have no connection to the actual uh, real facts that are provable. Most people, if they're gonna say something that's not true, it'll be some foggy thing that is at least in the realm of not provable. But when somebody comes up and just says it's Monday when everybody knows it's Tuesday, <laughs> It's just hard to imagine how we got in this situation. And it does obviously, uh, at some point, got to corrode the credibility and the effectiveness of the administration at some point. Where that is, we don't know. It certainly manifests itself right now in our foreign policy where, and I'm not telling you I've got all the answers in Syria or anything else, but the, the, the damage to the credibility of the administration in its ability to work with other countries because of this dynamic is, is really, really concerning. Um, this comes back to what I was talking about, though, why it's important for us to have a meaningful system of being able to have some common factual basis that we've got a, a way to find that out. And so those things are connected. Well, sticking to our theme, and you've touched on this a little bit, but what does ethical leadership in a state like ours look like in this era, in this era? <laughs> Just like that? Maybe elaborate a little bit. <laughs> um, well, that's a really broad question. Do you want to sharp? Do you want to sharpen it a little bit? Uh, no. So, what what should our state be doing to maintain our ethics in this in this challenging time? Right. I'm I'm uh, sharing a moment with my girlfriend of 50 years, Trudy here, who's here tonight, and she's smiling because she knows whatever I say to this next question, I can get in big trouble, so. Oh, really? Yeah. How, how so? <laughs> well, she'll tell you a million different ways. Um, uh, I mean, it is a big question. I guess when I think, uh, I mean, on ethics, uh, first you want to be truthful with people, right? So you want to you be truthful with people. It's just kind of okay, fun. We'll start with that. Kind, kind of fundamental. You want to um, you want to be a good listener, uh, and that is a very undervalued uh, part of leadership is being a good listener. 
and being a good listener means to really trying to appreciate what the other person really wants and is really saying and not to have that clouded by too much emotion uh, in making that decision. Um, it means transparency as much as you can and, and I proud myself, I've been named as the most transparent administration kind of like ever by the Newspaper Publishers Association, which I really appreciated. Uh, just one of the things I've I've refused to uh, exhibit executive privilege that would otherwise shield uh, documents in my administration from the press, for instance. So I believe transparency is in part is is important on that. Um, I think uh, being honest with people about when you cannot help them is is part of that, and sometimes that's a little difficult for people in public life because they want to please everyone and make everybody happy, right? So that's a common instinct. But sometimes you're not going to be able to help people and you're not going to be able to agree with people and having a way to let them know that in a sincere and honest way is, is part of that program uh, is, as well. So I could go on and on. Governor, most uh, governors in the past in the state of Washington have seemed to be wanted to be the education governor. It seems to us that maybe you want to be known as the climate change governor. Is it possible, given the what may be very dramatic cuts in the US EPA? Well, first off, let me take a little issue with your premise, if I can. Um, I don't want to be known as the anything governor. It's just, it's just not, I, I don't wake up saying I want to be the governor who X, Y, or Z. And, um, and the reason is, is that when you think in those terms, you're thinking about your own interest, not the state's. It's not a legacy issue. I will guarantee you that uh, as governor of the state of Washington, uh, I will be clearly forgotten within at least two or three decades. So it doesn't matter, okay? <laughs> We're all short timers here. So I'm not really looking for a legacy, if you will. Having said that, um, I believe right now the, the single most pressing need for my attention is to satisfy this McCleary obligation for our children, to finance the education of our kids and to put it in things that actually work. That's the single most important thing that I need to focus on right now. So, and that's what I am focusing on right now. For the long term of those same children, uh, I believe I've got uh, a moral responsibility, and I would say every leader has a moral responsibility to take reasonable actions to reduce climate change and ocean acidification because those are twin existential threats to the, to the uh, personal well-building of our kids and basically to the very foundation of civilization itself over time. So uh, I don't shrink from the, uh, the need to act on that. Uh, that's why I have, uh, for the first time, used uh, the state's clean air rule and my executive action to create a limit on the amount of carbon pollution coming from our major industries in the state of Washington. So I have put a limit on the amount of carbon pollution coming from our major industries. I believe I'm the first governor to do so through executive action with our state clean air law. It is a binding, legally enforce enforceable, concrete promise to our grandchildren that we are not going to let those emissions skyrocket in the state of Washington. I've also been a leader in creating a Clean Energy Institute, which is now doing great work to develop new systems of carbon-free technologies. Uh, at the University of Washington, I was at a test bed the other day. 
they have a whole new way of manufacturing uh, uh, solar panels. And it's very exciting what they're doing. Uh, I'm working in, in our Clean Energy Development Fund, which is helping businesses commercialize this technology. So I was at, in Muckleteal uh, a couple weeks ago where we rolled out the world's largest vanadium flow a grid-scale electrical battery that now allows the integration of renewable energy into the grid. And they're selling this product. They're selling 44 megawatts to Germany. They're selling to Fresno. They're selling them around the world. And they're putting to work people to work on that regard. We are electrifying our transportation system as rapidly as any place in the world today by helping spur the use of electric uh, vehicles, both by buying them in the state, uh, giving plug-in stations in the whole uh, suite. So from soup to nuts, we are acting in a responsible way, but we have not done enough. We have not done enough. Uh, the legislature has not done enough to, to satisfy our statewide goals on this subject. Do you think that there will be a carbon tax, either legislatively or by initiatives, since the voters turned down one version of it last year? So we don't know the answer to that yet, but you know that I have proposed as one of the ways to finance our schools um, uh, I have proposed that could be one of the measures, which, we, which would be a carbon tax to help a variety of our needs in our state, including education. Um, that is not in either the House or Senate budget at the moment, but as discussions continue, it very well could be. So that's a, a possibility. And there's an initiative possibility or probability or certainty if the legislature does not act. By when? By which, by which session? Uh, I, you know... I would think by 2018, if the legislature does not act, I think there is a high probability of an initiative being on the ballot so that state voters, and it doesn't mean it'll be a carbon tax, but some additional measure to reduce carbon pollution. And the reason is, is even with all the work that we are doing, we, are, we would not be able to meet all of our state goals. We need some additional tools to be able to do that in a, in a measurable way. That's why I'm urging the legislature to act. We're also trying to pass a solar bill, which will inspire the use of solar uh, energy uh, in the state of Washington. So there's multiple tools we need to use. And if I can just say one other thing, the, the reason, the reason um, this is so imperative is twofold. Number one, the science is so compelling on this. Every month, there is a new revelation about the fact that climate change is moving faster than we anticipated in a more dangerous way in more places. We've seen it in our state with raging forest fires, beetle-killed forests, ocean-acidified Puget Sound where we no longer can grow uh, baby oysters, lack of snowpack, threats to our irrigation. The White River now is flooding more often because we've had glacial till coming off Mount Rainier because of the unstable glaciers, and it clogs up the White River, so now it floods more often. This is hitting us today. This is just the, the tip of the melting iceberg, if I can coin a terrible metaphor. So uh, the science is demanding a more action on this, but also the job creation uh, possibilities of this, there's no greater economic opportunity than clean energy right now. And clean energy is, is the most rapidly growing, it's, it's the most rapidly growing, it's the most rapidly growing segment of our economy. So coming back to your first question, Joni, you ask about the need for a democratic jobs message. I'll tell you a democratic jobs message. We're going to put people to work building electric cars and solar panels and energy efficiency, and we're going to put people, including coal miners, to work, and that's a democratic message, and I'm happy to have it. We're going to win on that basis, so...
I manage a uh, Master's of Public Administration program, and many of our students are considering a career in the public service. Should they consider a, a career right now in the federal government, or should they perhaps maybe choose state or local government? Well, I'd, I'd encourage any bright minds out there to apply for the state of Washington. We need you. We, we need you in our uh, mental health system. We're rebuilding our mental health system. There's exciting opportunities in helping us reform our mental health care system. We're going to be rebuilding the way we provide career and technical education. Uh, there's a lot of policy issues that we have to deal with uh, in this regard. We got a lot of work that we do protecting our children and our children's protective services and the like. Yes, think about the state of Washington first. I hope you will. Uh, but again, this comes back to kind of what I was saying, that we should not be, um, we should not give up the fight or give up our dreams or our aspirations just because of the current occupant of the White House. We should not allow that. We should not get down in the dumps. We shouldn't have our chin on the ground. We shouldn't change our career ambitions. This is a transitory blink in time that we just got to get through. So anybody out there that wants to be a U.S. Senator or a Chief of Staff at the White House, go for it. Uh, your time will come. I may back you. Okay, Joni and I are going to ask two more questions, and then you'll have an opportunity to ask questions. So uh, please be thinking of some. And also, uh, come to the microphones. Uh, yes, we'll have, we'll have two microphones up here. So uh, John and uh, Lindsay will be... Uh, holding the mics for you, so. Uh. By the way, there's some folks holding up good green signs here. I'll be sure to address this issue before we leave here tonight, so if you want to hold your signs lower so people can see, that'd be great. I'll make sure to talk about this. Okay, and this is clearly not uh, a question that would be your problem. I just want to hear what you have to say. Uh, what would it take for the state of Washington to elect a Republican governor? We have the longest drought in the, in the whole country, and Oregon is second. So why can't the Republican Party elect a governor in the state of Washington now 30, um, 33 years? Well, um, it, it's hard to talk about these terms because you got to sound partisan when you talk about it. You know, I yeah. mean, no, with, it, it is give, when you when you when you get involved in these partisan disputes. I, I'm trying to forge a consensus between the Democrats and the Republicans right now to decide that to come to a compromise in this McCleary decision and trying to get them to listen to one another. They're going to have to both make some hard compromises on their original proposals. And so I don't go looking more than necessary for, you know, like arguments on a partisan basis. So I'm going to, I'll give you the one version of an answer. I think the bottom line is, um, you know, the, the Republican candidates just have been out of touch with the basic values of the state of Washington. And it hasn't been for lack of credible candidates. The people who have run have been, you know, accomplished, intelligent people, but the values they have proposed have not been consistent with where the heart of the Washington of Washington State is. That's about. I'll leave it at that. Okay. One more question from us, uh, as Folks, the come audience. Folks, if you want to ask some questions, uh, if you don't, if you don't line up, we won't, we won't get to all of them. As the audience is aware, and you are aware. Hillary Clinton won almost three million more votes than Donald Trump. Um, we still have this electoral college system in place. The same thing happened in 2000 when Al Gore won more popular votes than uh, George Bush. Do you think Democrats should work towards doing away with the electoral college system? Yes, uh, I support uh, going to a popular vote. And our state is part of this effort 
we have now signed on to a proposal that, that when enough states commit themselves to commit their electoral votes to follow the popular vote, that we will all do this. So there's actually a way to enforce a popular vote in the election of a president without a constitutional amendment. Because if enough states agree and sign a compact that, that when enough states agree that we'll vote our electorate, our electoral votes will go to the person who wins the popular vote, even though they might not have won in my state, we can then enforce a popular vote. We're about, I think, maybe close to two-thirds of the number of states that would be necessary to do that. So this is an important issue we'll continue. Are those states that usually go for Democrats or Republicans? I don't think they're just one or the other. I'll have to check on that. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, a lot of you lined up. Um, you, have a no you have a notebook or at least a folder. It looks like serious student work there. So ask your question. So I have actually a couple. Uh, um, we were gonna limit folks to I one question just because there's so many folks that wanna ask a question. Please to me, this last election, a thought of mine came to me, because I talked to people. Was, it's presented we're a two-party country, yet there's the independent parties, there's the green parties, there's all these other partisans, like parties that one can vote for. A personal theory, and I'm wondering if there's a way that this could be fixed, then instead of when elections happen, the right as the Republicans or Democrats are focused on, if hypothetically another situation like what just happened happens again, could there be a way to have it be an independent party gets just as much limelight as that of either the right, the Republicans or the Democrats? Okay. Well, if the independent party had as much support, uh, you know, that probably would happen organically. I think the, I, th I think what you what you would really need to ask is, should the United States go to a parliamentary system like you know most European countries, which would be a profound change in our entire system? I'm not in favor of that. I've looked at the instability of some of the parliamentary systems and the fragmentation that occurs. I actually think our system, troubled as it is, uh, frustrating as it is, particularly right now, uh, I, w I prefer it over a parliamentary system. Hello. Hi. I, um, I want to have a follow-up question on the clean air rule that you've imposed. What's the emissions reduction? Is that going to get us to like two degrees Celsius or is it, I've, I've heard it's just woefully inadequate. That Can you explain what you mean up. by the, the two degrees Celsius? You mean warming right. over a period? Right. Yeah, let me, let me take a stab at that. So we have a statutory uh, goal to reduce our emissions to 1990 levels. So that's a statutory goal. The legislature put that in law uh, six, seven years ago, but they never implemented any proposals to actually implement it. So I have, under our existing clean air rule, propounded a rule that will require the largest emitters of carbon dioxide to get a permit for their emissions, and every year the, the total amount of those emissions goes down, the cap goes down. So it will drive down the emissions of the major emitters. And basically their emission permit would be based on their historic level, 
and it will have to go down over time. So this will drive down our emissions in the state of Washington. But it will not drive them down them fast enough to comply with what I believe are the scientific concerns that are now uh, coming up that lead to, the, to your, your question. So that means we need to do more. We need to do it quickly. And the faster we do it, the more effective and cheaper it will be. So I'm urging the legislature to do additional things. Uh, they have been uh, you know, unable to produce a pricing mechanism for carbon. They have been un unable to produce a solar cell incentive. They actually put in a poison pill in our transportation package that said if I did do something about global warming, uh, everybody would lose all their bus and transit money. Now, I never understood that, that you have to make a decision whether you want to breathe or get on the bus. I never understood that. But they basically were just trying to hamstring the ability of the state of Washington to beat climate change. So this has not been easy in the current situation. Um, but we're going to have some elections coming up here pretty soon, one of which is going to be this November um, uh, in the 45th district. And that seat will determine who has the majority in the Washington State Senate. And that's a pretty doggone important issue when it comes to my ability and our ability to do something about climate change. So that's uh, this question you might want to ask about the candidates who are running that seat, too. We, we believe, and this might require us to revisit my rule, depending on what the legislature does this year. So we do have the ability to have a different rule, a more rigorous rule, over time. So I'm working with the legislature. It'd be great if they produce some measurable improvement this year. If they don't, we do have some additional executive authority that we could consider. Hello. Hi. Hey, good evening, Governor. Thank you so much for making it down. Um, my name is Rowan Kessel. I'm a current Washington State uh, legislative intern. And um, I actually want, my question is about civic education. Um, not everyone has uh, access uh, to certain programs um, to actually see how the process works and everything like that. Uh, could you speak to how we can improve civic education and, and learning more about the process uh, in terms of state uh, government and also federal government. So when instances like the most recent uh, presidential election or anything like that comes about, people are more engaged and not necessarily like there's this, you know, giant hullabaloo about, um, you know, uh, like this, this giant surge of like activity. It's always constant and not, you know, like an oscillating wave. Well, uh, thanks for the question. Thanks for being an intern too. I, I, I think it's a great program. We Interns are really inspiring to <laughs> us folks who've been there for a while. Uh, we need to improve our civic education throughout our public school system. It has been squeezed out. Our kids are not getting as much education as they need to understand basic democratic principles. And the reason it's been squeezed out is that eff effectively we've, we've imposed a lot of new obligations on our schools to do great things, science, math, computer science, chemistry, you name it, and it has squeezed out some of the social service uh, uh, teaching, the arts, the drama, um, the music, the civic education out of some of our schools. So we need to give them more resources so they can actually finish this job. I believe if we give them the resources, they will do that. And that's what this McCleary decision is about, is giving them the resources to do this. Your question? Thank you so much for coming and spending the time with us this evening. So I think I'm not alone in saying many of us were um, 
made painfully aware of the echo chamber in which we live in November, and we're really shocked by the results of the election. Um, but I've seen the Democratic Party pull further away into more partisanship and hasn't figured out a way to truly reach across the aisle and pick off the people that are now distancing themselves from the administration. Um, how, what, what are you doing to, to force that function and what should we be doing in our daily lives to get out of the echo chamber? Well, um, big question. I think the premise of this is that we wanna reach out to people who voted for President Donald Trump. Now I'm gonna answer this in the least partisan way I can, but I've, I've gotta answer your question. Um, either party to become a majority party wants to reach out to people who voted for their opponent last time, right? That's obvious, both ways. Republicans should want people who voted for Hillary Clinton to vote for their candidate next time. Uh, but I will just tell you as an objective observer, some of the things might be useful for a person who runs under the Democratic banner, if they're talking to a person who voted for Donald Trump, might wanna ask that voter a couple questions. Let me see. He promised to you he was gonna give you health care. Then he promised to take it all away from every way. And has he got anything done on health care at all? Did he fulfill that commitment to you? Hmm, interesting. Uh, did, did he tell you he was gonna drop the hammer on China? Uh, let's see, two days ago he said he's going to give new trade benefits to China to try to get them to do something or the other. Um, did he accomplish building, you know, his beautiful wall across the entire border? Did he get that done? Uh, well, he hasn't got that done, he's not going to get that done. So I think in the next cycle you are going to see a lot of disappointed people who voted for Donald Trump who were treated the same way Donald Trump treated the people who went to Trump University, which is it was a flim flam, and they are gonna feel betrayed. And then they are gonna vote for a Democrat in this, and I believe that's gonna happen. So that's the least partisan way I can say this. <laughs> Oops. Hi there. Hi, my name's DeAndrea Sanders. I'm a graduate student I'm here at Seattle U in the Public Administration Program. My question tonight is regarding uh, the mental health crisis that we have um, here in our state. And I noticed that you um, have often mentioned um, your dedication to helping solve our um, issue of having um, few mental health care services here. So my question to you tonight is what does your plan look like? Would you be able to elaborate on that um, as far as your plans and efforts on this issue? Thank you, I really appreciate that question. Mental health is so tied to everything. It's so tied to our homelessness challenge uh, by the way, Trudy you know, has been very active, particularly on youth homelessness. We've really focused on youth homelessness to be able to get these young people off the streets into a housing first model and get them the therapy they need. But that involves, if we're gonna do that, really fundamentally restructuring our mental health care system in kind of three ways. Number one, we have to have a preventative-based system rather than a reactive system. We gotta treat these problems earlier so that people don't end up in a, a psychiatric episode. So getting a preventative system which will divert people out of our jails and into the mental health care system because about 40 to 50% of people in our jails have untreated mental illness and it costs humongous amounts of money to have them in jail. So getting a mental health care treatment, diverting them is really important. Uh, we were in Tacoma yesterday, I've been in Spokane and Everett looking at those ways. That's number one. Number two, we've got to rebuild our state hospital system which has been depleted. It's been starved by the legislature. 
As a result, no one worked there. As a result, we, we were not providing adequate care for people. And we've, I've had to do, frankly, Herculean efforts. We now have 388 more people at Western State. It's a recovering institution. But I need the legislators to continue to fund this. The Republican budget zeroes out the money that I used to hire 388 nurses and psychiatrists at Western State Hospital. And we can't let that system go downhill, so that's important. Third, we have to build a more community-based system so when people come out of the state hospitals, they can go back to their neighborhoods, their families, where they work. It's much more successful when people go home into their communities. So uh, we hope to restructure the system uh, in that regard. This does take some investments. I really hope we're successful, and thanks for your question. Next question. Hi, there. Hi, Governor. My name is Reem. I'm a senior at the UW majoring in economics, and my question for you is, uh, what do you think is the appropriate balance between protecting free speech and pr protecting the rights of minorities to feel safe? In particular, do you think the decision to allow Milo Yonopoulos to speak at the UW on January 20th was appropriate? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to answer the second question because I just don't know enough about the circumstances. I think university Administrators are in really hard decisions on that. You know, you want to respect free speech, and I think that's important everywhere, including college campuses. And I think uh, all of us have to, uh, uh, particularly on colleges, be willing to expose ourselves to attitudes we don't appreciate and ideologies we don't understand. I think that's part of a college experience, as much as I'm revolted by a lot of things I hear. On the other hand, administrators ought to make safety decisions that are appropriate too. If you know people are gonna get hurt or damaged, they gotta balance those things. I don't know enough about that particular circumstance to be judgmental. I did express to the president though that I understood she had a real tough decision to make. So I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, uh, critical of her decision to allow that to move forward. The, the bigger question though is, you know, how do you balance free speech? This is an age old uh, challenge, but I, I would say that I'm pretty comfortable where we are in America on that balance. Because generally speaking, we have respected free speech uh, unless it comes down to a situation that will cause a breach of the peace and violence and a sense of danger. Yelling fire in a crowded theater is the most obvious way. And the courts generally have said that's kind of the, the hue and cry. And by the way, that's pretty tough. This free speech stuff is, is not for wimps, you know? Um, the courts allowed the, the Nazi party to march through Skokie, Illinois 20 or 30 years ago. You know, a heavily Jewish community. That's pretty hard to accept. Uh, but democracy's tough sometimes. And uh, that's the best I can answer your question. Thank you. Hello. Good luck. I was a senior in economics. Be careful. I just ended up governor, so be careful. So. <laughs> Uh, hi, Governor. Uh, my name is Robert Kaminsky. Um, I'm here with 350 Seattle. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you were in New York at the UN talking about climate change and how this is the most important issue of our time. Um, here in the Northwest, in Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia, we're seeing a massive um, push for new fossil fuel export terminals to uh, markets in Asia, um, including this world's largest methanol refinery on the Columbia River in Kalama. Um, do you have any, any thoughts on that? We haven't um, heard a public opinion or a public statement from you about it in a long time. Um, and just in general, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, these are hard issues because I'm prohibited from saying a lot about these, these uh, permitting. Each of these programs, there are three uh, significant uh, uh, projects that are now in the permitting process. 
And as a permitting authority, I can't make, I have to be very constrained what I say about these during the permitting process. So I have not been able to say much about these programs and won't say much about them tonight because we still have to hew to this permitting process. Fundamentally, what I can tell you is I'm gonna follow the law, okay? That's my obligation and I'm going to do that. Uh, I am fully aware, I think you know about the damage and concerns about uh, climate change. I know people were, had methanol signs up, so let me address the methanol one. Um, this is not in the FSEC process, so it allows me to talk a little bit about it. Um, uh, there, are issue, there are concerns about the methanol plant, about local disturbances. Should we should air. describe for folks. Yeah, I'm sorry, yes, be. thank you. In Kalama, yeah, there's a proposed the plant that will produce methanol. Methanol is a product that is produced from natural gas, and it is used in the production of virtually all plastics. So everything you have in your pocket right now probably comes from methanol at some point. And there is a plans to, um, a proposal to build a, uh, a, a plant that will create methanol, ship it primarily to Asia, mostly to China, for the production of, of plastics. There have been concerns raised about it during the permitting process uh, of issues on the river, issues on air emissions, and issues about usage of natural gas. We are committed to make sure all of those questions get answered in detail, with as exquisite detail as we could muster. I'm just gonna give you a couple uh, observations about it. The proponent has done some pretty extraordinary things to make sure that we do not have emissions into the Columbia River. They've actually proposed some new technologies that will have zero discharge into the Columbia River. That's good, right, because we know how precious the Columbia River is. I know there are concerns about the amount of natural gas that could be used in the production because that could result in some infrastructure needs and pipelines. I know some people are concerned about that. Uh, we are evaluating that. I will just tell you my initial observation is that, and, and I know that the proponent has said they do not intend to need any additional infrastructure to feed the plant so that they would not need another pipeline. The existing pipeline is adequate to their needs. Opponents of the plan don't believe that. They, they critique that observation. So we're gonna be looking at these questions uh, during the permitting process. I have not making it, made a decision on them because I need to look at the evidence and I'll make sure uh, that I do and we'll uh, be very careful getting the science on this. Next question. I, let me make one other comment too because I know people care a lot about this. Uh, folks who legitimately care about carbon dioxide, which I really, honor everybody with the green sign out here tonight because it means you care about climate change and we certainly can use a lot more of that right now. One of the questions about this methanol plant is the carbon dioxide emission portfolio, if you will, or profile throughout the whole supply chain. Uh, I've looked at the, the chemistry of this and the chemistry of the process because it would replace coal-based methanol has the potential to actually reduce carbon dioxide relative to the same production using the existing process. They, today they use coal to make methanol in China. If they switch over to this process, it actually reduces the carbon dioxide. And I've looked at the chemistry of that. So you have to weigh that against some of the questions about the pipeline infrastructure. We'll be getting to the bottom of those questions. 
Hi there. Thanks for being here, Governor Inslee. My name is Jess. I'm also here with 350 Seattle, and I'm also extremely concerned about the proposed methanol refinery. Um, you know, you, you've given a little bit of detail, but to add a number, it's expected to, to increase Washington's current natural gas use by 30%, locking us into decades of fossil fuel consumption and decades of increased climate emissions. And not only does, you know, that seem like an extremely concerning increase from one plant, but as we continue to invest in new fossil fuel infrastructure, we're sending a clear message to industry that it's okay to build fossil fuel infrastructure in Washington state. As someone who's young and expects to live a long and healthy life in Washington state, those two don't line up. So, you know, you downplayed the, the idea of being the climate change governor earlier, but you are committed to acting on climate change. And you've got a pretty big national spotlight right now. And I'd like to know what concrete steps you're going to take to make sure that Washington state stops investing in fossil fuel infrastructure and actually starts building the clean economy. So again, this is difficult for me because uh, I, uh, I can't talk about these permitting programs with you. I would not be following the law if I did that. We have an oil transport uh, proposal down in Vancouver. It, it, uh, we have a, a program called the FSEC process. And it legally, because I will be in the ultimate permitting decider on that, uh, I would not be following the law if I expressed a commitment to you tonight, as much as I'd like to make everybody in this room happy. Um, I can't make that commitment to you because I would not be following the law. And it would not be wise from your perspective to have me breach the law that would then allow the proponents of these uh, proposals to challenge my decision in court. So what I can tell you is that uh, I have a profound interest in stopping climate change. I think I've demonstrated that. And that I will make a, a decision based on the permit evidence that is provided. I can also commit to you that we have been and will be extremely rigorous in assuring that we get the information about the carbon profile of all of these projects. Now, we are being challenged. The proponents of these projects have rebelled against that insistence. So I have, I have, our Department of Ecology has required the information about carbon dioxide profile throughout the life chain of the product. The proponents of these programs uh, uh, resist that. They don't think that's right. Nonetheless, we're insisting that we get that information so that both you and I, the public, will have the information about the carbon profile. So that's the best uh, assurance I can give you right now, and it's compliant with the law, and I'm doing my duty, and I'm doing it what I think is the right thing for the state of Washington. I will mention one other thing that is, that is uh, controversial, but let me talk about this. In regard to the methanol plant, the fact of the matter is everybody in this room today is using methanol from coal, which is really, really dirty. Every cell phone in our pocket, every tennis shoe, uh, most pieces of jewelry have plastic that comes from methanol. Today, it comes from coal and the coal is processed into methanol, and the methanol is made into plastic, and the plastic is made into our cell phones. Now that's just the reality. Now if in fact we can replace that coal-based methanol with a process that reduces carbon dioxide, which is a very dangerous toxic, uh, not toxic, toxic to the environment, we ought to think about doing that. Because if I can have less coal and less carbon dioxide for the same number of cell phones, I think that's a pretty good idea if it doesn't have untoward effects somewhere else in our environment. Now, that means you'd still be using natural gas. 
we'd like to use cotton candy, but there just isn't a lot of chemistry that allows that right now. So what I'm suggesting, I heard a lady say and replace plastic. That might be a vision that people have. But in the next few years, uh, totally replacing plastic is probably not uh, in the cards in our, in our economy or our personal lives, maybe long term. So uh, I just suggest to you that as a carbon uh, a person who's dedicated quite a bit of my time to beat climate change, I'm not going to uh, let you down making decisions that I think are not going to be good for the environment. I'm committed to that. But these are sophisticated analyses. They're not knee-jerk, and I'm going to make a good decision on this. We have time for two more questions. Go ahead. Um, hi, Governor. Uh, sorry. Hi, Governor. Thank you for coming. My name is Braden Sigua. I'm a freshman here at SU, and my question kind of has to do with cell phones, which you were talking about, but it's not a question about policy, maybe more of a suggestion or opinion. I think that civic engagement is really, really important for any American citizen, and I get really upset when people are like, I don't really care what's going on on the Hill, or I didn't vote. Um, but yet, I find myself, and I think I can speak for many people in this day and age, when I'm constantly on social media or I'm reading print, I get somewhat desensitized to the issues that are going on, whether it be a mass shooting or some other controversial issue in this country. So my question is, how can I be an active participant in US politics and US culture without losing the sense of humanity that I'm wanting to hold on to? Do you have any suggestions for that? Well, I gotta tell, I'm not sure I understand what your question. Tell, tell me a little bit more about how you feel. What, what is it that's troubling you? Well, like the, uh, the example that I always bring up to people, because I've asked a lot of my professors about this, is when I hear so frequently there's been another shooting and five people are dead in um, A high school or B city, um, I start to care less and less. And still, the issue of gun control is a very large one in this country and something that needs to be discussed. But I find with a lot of these issues, I just stop caring a little bit more and like things start to wash over my head because I absorb so much media every day and I can't just step out of you know the culture that we're living in because then that's kind of being ignorant and irresponsible. But I don't know how I'm supposed to balance the two. Well, I think it's a really important question and I don't have the full answer to this. I will tell you that I share some of your concerns. I, I think that the... Uh, I think that the electronic environment that we today live in uh, probably has some untoward effects that we don't quite understand yet. I, I really believe that the, our need for a shot of dopamine that we get every single time this little machine makes a noise, that's the way it works. Every time we hear a little buzz, we get a little shot of dopamine and that, that's pretty sweet. I actually think I actually think there's, there's consequences of that that we don't fully understand yet that is part of this problem. I think that the fact that when I grew up, I kind of knew if there was something bad happened in King County. But today, uh, you know, my grandson knows every single disaster in, right on his screen in real time in the world, in billions of people. We are exposed to, I think, a lot more negative information in that regard. What we do about that, I, I don't have the full answer, except my fundamental message tonight, what do we do in the era of this current administration is, uh, when you're going through hell, keep going, okay? That's just the fundamental message here, and we just gotta suck it up and, and keep our eyes on the prize, like Dr. King said. One more question. Uh, thank you very much, Governor Inslee, for 
going into the nuances on a lot of these issues, and particularly that extended exchange around your permitting authority. I appreciate you getting into that level of detail. Um, one of the things that you've done that I've worked on for the last eight years that's really helped us build Washington as part of the thin green line on climate and fossil fuels is order a comprehensive environmental review of coal and oil projects uh, and that the state and the Department of Ecology really led on. However, to the contrary on gas projects, largely your administration has left these permitting decisions and the lead on the review of them to local agencies. It's something that a number of environmental organizations in the state, including the Sierra Club, and I think last Friday, Washington Environmental Council sent a letter expressing extreme concern over. So it is something that is in your authority to do, and my question is, will you use the same comprehensive review led by the State Department of Ecology to look at gas infrastructure? Because there are massive plans to expand gas infrastructure in our state. Northwest Natural Gas Association has put into their, you know, comprehensive three-year plan new pipeline infrastructure. It's something a lot of people are very concerned about. Yeah, what, which pipe, what are you referring to? Which pipeline are you referring to? What routes? Oh, I'm referring to, well, one, the Sumas pipeline route that would come through Seattle. There's another proposal over Mount Hood uh, into Washington, both Washington and Oregon. Uh, not Both have been withdrawn recently, but they're in the comprehensive plans that uh, the North, pardon me, both Northwest Natural, the gas company, has put in. And the reason folks are concerned about the methanol refinery is because the Gas Industry Association has referred to that facility as an anchor tenant to expand gas infrastructure in the state. Well, I'll answer your question as much. I'm kind of at liberty to do so, so this may not be a black or white answer. But I think, you know, uh, look, infrastructure projects that have the capacity to do what the, uh, you know, gas port in Vancouver or the coal port potentially in Longview that have those same capacity that are used for fuel, I think you could probably anticipate the same policy treatment from our administration. Now, I haven't looked at the specifics of that, so I can't give you a specific answer. But generally speaking, I wouldn't see a, a reason for a difference. If you're gonna have the same footprint, if you will, from the same product for fuel, I wouldn't see why we would treat it differently uh, than we have. That's the best I can give you uh, right now. But I, but I will say this, though. I do think there's a difference, as I've expressed in this methanol plant, between infrastructure for fuel, which involves the oxidation of a fossil fuel that produces carbon dioxide, and a chemical process that creates a precursor to plastic. They are different on their CO2 uh, Poor, uh, footprints, if you will. Did I answer your question as well as I could? <laughs> I think as well as you could. We'll talk some more. We'll talk some more. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Governor, very much for coming Thank tonight. Thank you so much. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle, featuring a talk by Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. He spoke at Seattle University's Piggott Auditorium on April 12th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.